Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week on Soul of the Nation, we are bringing you a special conversation we held recently at Georgetown University to discuss the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Many have called the letter the most important document of the civil rights era, and this year, events marking the 60th anniversary of its publication were held in cities across the country, which speaks to its enduring power. I was joined in this conversation by Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie, Interim President and General Secretary of the National Council of Churches, and the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Senior Pastor of Trinity, United Church of Christ in Chicago. Together we reflected on King's famed epistle and its lessons for our day. Letter from Birmingham Jail continues to challenge Christians and all people of faith to understand that as King warned in the letter, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Our conversation was especially important because we're at a moment when a conservative movement is attempting to whitewash American history, to literally remove books and lessons from our children's schools. A country that cannot learn from its history is a country that will not be able to build a just future for all its citizens. Thanks for listening, and as always, blessings to you and blessings upon the soul of a nation. I just want to start with both of you this conversation on a personal note and ask both of you, what has been your personal relationship with this letter? What is your earliest memory of your engagement with it? What did you think then? How has it impacted you? And how does it continue to impact you now? Bishop McKenzie, let's start with you. Jim, thank you so much uh, for uh, convening this opportunity to talk about the, the letter from the Birmingham jail and, and just as excited to uh, be uh, in conversation and dialogue with a, a good brother and friend, uh, Otis Moss III. Uh, and so thank you for bringing this conversation uh, to the forefront of the 21st century. Uh, when the letter, uh, when King was imprisoned in Birmingham jail, you have to understand that I grew up in a very social justice, social conscious family. Uh, my family, uh, you know, owned the, the Afro-American newspaper, which has been around for 130 some years. And so activism was a part of what we do every day. It wasn't something that you just go out and find or have nothing else better to do to do. Uh, we were involved from the earliest age from three years old at five years old, you know, you know, where we're going to the playground, this playground, uh, uh, colored children were not allowed to play on, but today you are and um, over and over again. So I was in high school, graduating senior in May, 1963. Don't you dare do the math in May, 1963. And I remember sitting uh, in the basement of our home, uh, it was dark and uh, the television was on. You remember at those days, television was a piece of furniture, right? Right. Otis would know none, none of this. But at that time, uh, television was a piece of furniture. And so now we're we're watching. And my father 
uh, was watching and the film clips of the hoses and the dogs and all of that were turned loose on people who were protesting nonviolently. My, you have to understand, my dad was 200 pounds, 6'4", uh, you know, college, former college athlete, big, strong guy. And, you know, I looked over and I saw tears coming down from, from his eyes. And he just looked at me and he said, never let anyone have to ask you what you did for your people, period, in the discussion. And from that moment, you know, you know, from that moment, I sensed um, the African diaspora calling. Not that I asked for the African diaspora to call, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there is there's something that compels you into this work. And so I heard the quotes from the letter before I actually read the letter. Mm. And so the quotes started in, in that summer, um, you know, justice. Uh, anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. You know, I kept hearing the quotes, um, uh, we are uh, uh, interconnected mutually. You know, I mean, all these quotes were popping, but did not know where it came from until I read it. Uh, and we were, we were compelled to read it in an African-American history class at Morgan State University. And that's where I read the class. So for anybody who says that African-American history doesn't, whoa, 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 no, uh, uh, yeah, African-American history class is where we first read it. And you have to understand that reading it, reading it and understanding the, you know, find out the facts to prove your point that there is some injustice and create an, an intense, um, an intense event where people have to stop and take a look at what they have refused to ignore. We were the generation that was shutting down universities all over the, all over the United States. You know, so when you Morgan State University shut down, we sitting in, nothing happening until, the, uh, until they respond to us. And this was happening over and over again. So when you said, what kind of influence did this letter have on us? We, you know, discovered King's roadmap to change. Mm. This is a roadmap, and you can go back and look at history to see that every other organization that was looking for social change followed the roadmap that he went out, that he set out in the in the, the letter from the Birmingham jail. So that was my first engagement. Its impact upon us is that, you know, we were like shutting down schools and so forth. My older brother was going on bus rides through the South. He was, he was, you know, there was the, the college students were all involved. And what that was is that was, it was a very fearful time because he would leave the house and he would be going on these campaigns through the South. I remember having prayer in uh, our parents' living room uh, that God would protect him and, and, and take care of him. And um, not knowing if he's gonna make it back alive and if it's going to make it back in one piece, is he still going to be in his right mind? Uh, and would he be injured in such a way that he would re really not be my brother anymore? So it was a fearful time, uh, a fearful time when you something had to be done. The African diaspora is calling you to do it. And King gives us a roadmap on how to begin that process of change. I hope I answered your question. You did. I, I love uh, how this letter broke right into your family. Mm -hmm. A family that was deeply involved in the struggle. Uh, it was a family letter. 
<laughs> and then your class have broken your class. And I think it's a wonderful uh, phrase. This was a roadmap. That's, that really explains what this letter was. It wasn't just a, a response. It became more than that. It became a roadmap. So, uh, Reverend Moss, um, same thing. On a personal note, you also, I said, you're, you have a DNA of the civil rights movement. You have generational involvement. So when did this first hit you? When did you hear about it, see it, and how did it impact you? Uh, at that moment. Well, first, I, I want to say thank you for, for for allowing me to participate in this conversation, uh, along with, with with my bishop, Bishop Vashti McKenzie. We are so grateful for for her leadership and for your uh, leadership. And of course, to be in anywhere next to Georgetown, uh, that's a whole other story. I was a huge John Thompson fan, um, by the way, back back in the day. So, uh, you know, go Hoyas all the time. Uh, so that was my favorite, favorite team, but I'm just very, very grateful. There were in my family, um, both of my parents uh, were involved in the movement. My mother was office manager for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and, and my father was, was an organizer uh, for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And uh, much later, uh, after I, I came along, and um, there was what I would call extra, extra canonical material that my father had added to uh, the biblical canon. Uh, we always knew that, uh, of course, there was the Bible, but there was extra material. Uh, let me give you the extra material that was considered to be sacrosanct within, within our household. Jesus and the disinherited uh, was one piece. So Howard Thurman had to be included. Uh, Frederick Douglass's July 4th speech <laughs> was another piece, along with the story of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech. And then there was the letter from a Birmingham jail. And he would always communicate about this epistle. He said, this is an epistle. He said, you can read Paul's epistles, but you have to also understand King's epistle. And so from the pulpit and from the dinner table, my parents would have this conversation. Uh, the conversation about this work and the brilliance of what Dr. King did, who was able to merge African-American cultural history, perspective, and theology, weave together Martin Berber and St. Augustine, put in a little bit of, of Socrates, lay out some moral philosophy, uh, and then throw a wink a shade and you need to get right for those who were the moderate liberals at the time who thought he was moving too fast. He was saying that it was one of the most brilliant uh, pieces that not many ministers, not many people, period, could weave together what he was able to do in a jail cell with toilet paper and a newspaper. He had no iPad, you know, and didn't have a laptop. Uh, he was able to put together probably one of the greatest uh, civic pieces of communication America has ever witnessed uh, and still resonates today. So I would hear the story of the letter, the people who smuggled it out. <laughs> I would hear the story of when they first read it. I was hearing these stories and they would seep into me, but I didn't study it. Uh, just as Bishop had also mentioned, until I was at Morehouse College, Dean Lawrence Carter, who is the dean of the Martin Luther King Jr. Chapel at Morehouse College. It was a requirement 
that you had to to study this letter and understand the depth of 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 Dr. King's intellect that and as Dr. Dean Carter would say, he said that it is your it is your responsibility if you choose to go into ministry. This is the model in terms of that you must not only have this burning to preach, you must have intellectual depth to be able to communicate the issues of the time. And, and that was, was my introduction fully, uh, was at the dinner table hearing my father preach it from the pulpit and then being uh, faced with the letter as uh, an academic uh, piece of, of creativity from one of the greatest prophets and thinkers in, in the 20th century. So this roadmap, as Bishop McKenzie called it, uh, was also an uh, extra canonical epistle. I love that. Uh, in your house. And you both went at it in college. You both went to study it in college. So let's let's dig into the content of this letter, which still resonates to, to today. So, uh, Otis, let me start, start with you this time. What are the central main messages of the letter that you remember, that stand out to you, always have? And from your vantage point right now as a christian leader today why is this letter still so relevant well the one that, that resonates me was minister to ministers what was this, this this communication so the remnant the prophetic remnant communicating to the whiter uh ministerial uh community in other words the prophet communicating to the priest uh, and pushing the priests to become prophets, because you can be a priest and prophet, and prophets can be priests, but not all priests are prophets and not all prophets are priests. But th that communication of a community that was trying, that thought it had moral agency, but didn't have a, a moral leg to stand on, saying, why are you doing this? H how dare you um, break laws? And which laws do you decide that you wanna break? And then here comes Dr. King, throwing back at them, St. Augustine. And, and please know, he throws back an African theologian <laughs> at them, which is so, so brilliant in one way that Augustine says that, um, that an unjust law is not a law at all. And the, you know, we would today say, Dr. King knew how to throw some shade and get you straight at the same time. It was, it's just such a smooth and brilliant communication. And what's so important about it today is you still have people who, um, who have ecclesiastical positions, but have no moral authority and who are trying to claim moral authority. He was talking to the Christian nationalists of his day mm -hmm. and setting them straight and saying, you have no moral authority because your authority that you think you have is wrapped up in a Constantinian view of Christianity of empire. And I want to correct that. So um, it was really countering the Christian nationalists. I love that. That's, that's as relevant as could possibly be. The best way to confront bad religion is with religion that's true. So he was taking true religion. And indeed, it was in Augustine was an African bishop and Bishop Vashti, uh, when she became Bishop of AME, she went to Africa for her stint in much the same way. So Bishop McKenzie, uh, what main messages stand out for you 
from the letter and how are they really relevant right now? Mm. Well, there, there are many, there are many, Jim, but one particular uh, part that stands out is that uh, the oppressor does not voluntarily, <laughs> does not voluntarily give up its power. And so then really um, it falls upon the shoulders of the oppressed to instigate change. Uh, there have been times in my life when I thought it was unfair. You know, why is it why is it the the beatdown people? Why is those who are hurting the most? Why are those who are always on the outside looking in? Um, you know, um, why do, why is it that that burden is placed upon our shoulders to be able to speak up and confront and adjust? So um, it is that that to me is a call to action, is a call to change. You just cannot sit idly by. You remember, you know, you know. Um, we were a part of the Brown versus the Board of Education crowd. And so, um, you know, all deliberate speed uh, was about the speed of a snail. Uh, and so unless you push that envelope, it's just not going to happen. And this change theory, this, you know, the change theory really is biblically based. Jesus used the same kind of change, um, change methodology uh, in confronting the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the doubters. Um, he used carefully crafted words, uh, creating images in the mind and stories that explain complicated theological process. So, so all Jesus had to say was see faith, net kingdom of God. And it kind of explains everything. And so here comes King using language, simple language, that just opens the mind. You know, power does not submit itself voluntarily. You are really going to have to stand up and confront this process. You're really going to have to speak up. You cannot just lay down and wait for change to happen. Um, King also talked about in this, in this roadmap, I, I call it a roadmap, you know, a blueprint, if you will, the call to civil disobedience, which was really just so uncharacteristic when all the time, all of us, I'm talking about all of us, at, at black, black people and allies were calling for people to, to follow the law, follow Brown versus the Board of Education, you know, do this, do that. But King says, wait, there's a difference between just and unjust laws. And when the majority forces a minority to obey something or to do something by law, that which it will not do itself. You are permanently creating an underclass and then falsely giving the oppression, the impression of privilege to another. And so I agree with Dr. Moss. King was confronting the white Christian nationalist of his day, and he did it masterfully. And as you point out, there was the, those who criticized him, the clergymen, were kind of saying, stay within the law, stay within the system, fight behind the scenes, uh, do more legal cases. But going to the streets was their problem, the way he brought these issues to the streets. And you're saying this letter, which from the beginning made its way to your, both your families and to both your colleges, this letter went beyond Birmingham pretty quickly. And today, we're still talking about it as the blueprint, as the as the uh, epistle 
And it really, as you say, there's a theology and a theory of change here. Theology and a theory of change. So in the letter, one thing that I've always really uh, been struck by is how King contrasts the white church of his day with the earliest followers of Jesus. He makes that stark contrast. He writes, in those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and the principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat, contrasting thermometers and thermostats that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed. And here was King now disturbing the power structure of Birmingham in the same, same way. So, so comment both of you on, on this powerful contrast. Uh, thermometers and thermostats. We often, you know, Romans says, don't be conformed to the world, transformed by a renewal of your mind, which is don't be a thermometer. Uh, be a thermostat. So that contrast was very strong throughout this letter here. Both of you comment on that, either one first. Well, since I was last, I guess I'll go first this time and then you can be, <laughs> you can bet, you can bet, uh, bet cleanup. Uh, see mm -hmm. here, we were talking about how Jesus uses these words. And I think every preacher in the world has preached at one time, uh, the difference between thermometer and thermostat. Uh, but 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 with Jesus and King, there is a barometer about discerning the times, uh, and where Jesus confronted his critics and says, "You can you can tell you can tell about the changes of the weather, but you cannot discern the times." And so, uh, for me, you know, where are the sons and daughters of Issachar? Where are the sons and daughters of Issachar to discern the times now? To understand that the time of waiting is over. Uh, we have been in the incubator of, of, of justice for a very long time. And um, we've been waiting for our unalienable rights. <laughs> and they haven't yet, uh, it haven't yet been, uh, been, been given. So um, when we talk about uh, the change theory, the thermometer, the barometer, um, I think, you know, when, when, when King talks about when, when people talk about him being, no, he said it, I'm a, I'm a drum major for justice. Um, when, he, when he says it, that, that's another set of those words that says we cannot sit on the sidelines and wait for someone to hand what was granted to us by God, you know, Imagio Day, what has been granted us by God to just come into, into our laps. It's just not going to happen. We're the ones that's going to have to push the envelope to instigate the intense event that makes America take a look at itself. So Reverend Moss, have you preached the thermometer thermostat sermon? Well, I've used it as an illustration without a doubt. Without, without a doubt. Bishop is absolutely right that 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 some I and I I heard it growing up. I heard uh preachers from uh rural areas used to say that there is a thermometer, you know, and they go into the whole thing about the thermometer and it's like it just deals with what's going on outside, you know, it goes up and down according to what is outside of it. Ah, but the thermostat, the thermostat controls the temperature, you know. So yeah, I I've I've heard that 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 often. And the the brilliance of King is he is disrupting uh the colonizing logic colonizing logic. So the he's responding uh, to these ministers who are saying, you know what, we, we don't like your demonstrations because 
the demonstrations, prior to the demonstrations, there are violence. And you are a, you know, it precipitates your, your demonstrations. And he responds with such brilliant logic to say, that is the same as if you are upset that a man gets robbed and his robbery is precipitated because he had something and you said, well, he shouldn't have anything. And so he's, he's walking through. And what we can't miss is a black person at the height of a moment where you were not considered to be fully human, nor have the intellectual capacity to be able to, to joust with these ministers who had supposedly graduated from these uh, wonderful universities, to have a man in jail with toilet paper, tearing your logic apart is in itself, the act is, is like an intellectual bout of Muhammad Ali, fighting someone who actually doesn't know anything about boxing. They think they do because, you know, they got boxing gloves, but they've never been taught. And and every step of the way, Dr. King completely destroys the logic of colonization. When I hear you both speak to this, it strikes me the contrast between those who chart the winds, which we hear every day on the weather, who chart the winds, King was trying to change the wind. Mm. And every movement has to change the wind, not just chart it and see where it's blowing and record that, but change the way the wind's blowing. And the politicians, uh, they, they have their finger up in the air and they see which way the winds are blowing. So when we're changing the wind, they notice that. And then they, they, they respond to that. Here's what King said uh, about this difference in strategy. Uh, but things are different now, he said, back in 1963. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. So each of you, what are some of the ways that you see the contemporary church supporting the status quo, being the thermometer instead of a thermostat charting the wind and not changing the wind. And we use examples of it really beginning to be the thermostat and trying to really change the wind. Where do you see that happen? When, when we consciously or unconsciously preach sermons that are complicit with the oppressor. When we when that when that happens. When we fail to examine the way we teach the Bible, we teach Sunday school, um, the way and what we preach. That's one way. Uh, our, our churches, our churches, there was a time when our churches were the center of African-American culture. Sunday school was where people learn how to read. And we may need to have Sunday school again. Mm. where we teach our history, you mm -hmm. know, where we teach. We are the only people who entrust the education of our young to people who hate us, mm. who don't like us, who never did for four centuries. And no matter who you are, what you do, you can be the president of the United States, but in the mind of the oppressor, you're still a boy. Mm that needs to jump when I say jump and do what I say do, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. when we are complicit in our preaching, 
when we fail to find the courage from somewhere. Yes, some people, it, you know, it's, uh, yes, they're absolutely afraid. But what King did in the letter, he started out by talking about these are the facts. These are the reasons why I can see injustice in Birmingham. Um, homes were bombed and no one goes to find out. And violence has happened and there's no justice anywhere. So he gathered his facts. And so church after church, pastor after pastor, allow themselves to be threatened with their 501c3 mm. without going to find out the information to know this is what you can do, even though you 501c3. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Or we allow ourselves to be divided by an issue without understanding the reason why that issue is so important. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking about this issue. Oh, this is this issue, and it immediately divides us, and we cannot find a way in which we come back together so we can stand together. We, we tend to keep identifying the things that separate us rather than identify the things that we that can bring us together. Mm -hmm. and, we, and so the uncertain sound is the pragmatic voice of the prophetic house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Moss, how do you see the church just conforming to the winds or changing the time. I think that the, uh, the the church is conforming uh to to the wind when it when it when it wraps itself in a pseudo theology uh that is more of an ideology uh and it's masquerading in that manner that creates trauma destruction and does nothing to alleviate the suffering of of God's people. And I would use the example of how the pulpit has been used to destroy, undermine, uh, hurt, and harm. And the doctrinal words, uh, just pray on it. Stay with the, oh, you've got, you know, bruises around your neck. Um, you know, the, I mean, the, the, the kind of trauma that is put forth from the pulpit that is maintaining a type of destructive misogyny uh, that is maintaining a, a destructive uh, racialized imagination and then yells loudly about some particular issue, but is quiet around mm -hmm. issues mm -hmm. of suffering. And today we, you know, you see it very mm -hmm. clearly if we may lift up a state, Florida, um, where you have legislature in Florida and in Tennessee and in other places that are attempting to quiet the voice of some of the most brilliant writers America has ever witnessed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Toni Morrison, can't read her. Maya Angelou, no more. James Baldwin is destructive. And the church, and when I speak of the church, I'm talking about the church that functions as empire. Speaking of the church that has joined hands with Pharaoh, when I speak of the church, I'm talking about that church. But on the other end, then there is the remnant, just as a minister talking to ministers, there is a remnant of communities and people who are speaking prophetically, whether it is uh, a poor people's campaign or dream defenders, or it is a state legislator in Tennessee who decides to quote Dr. King from the legislative floor 
speaking about gun violence, that the voice of the prophet continues to echo. But prophets are never, never show up in mass. They're always a small remnant. And we should never assume uh, that the church will be collectively prophetic. There will be a remnant. And hopefully that remnant, in the words of Nas, will get the mic. And then one mic can change the world. I was thinking the other day about how uh, uh, where they're banning the books and and teachers are taking books off the shelf about Roberto Clemente and Jackie Robinson because mm-hmm. they're afraid they'll be punished. Maybe churches in those places should set up whole big new libraries <laughs> in our churches and young people stream to our libraries after school to read those books that they're trying to keep from being read. You mentioned young people. Let me ask you a question here. Um, we care about young people. Lot King said in that letter, quote, young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. He was meeting these young people. Now, all three of us have met those young people. Uh, Otis, when you were last year, Georgetown, my students all went to hear you and uh, told me how wonderful you were. I told them I already knew. So our young people in your communities are still looking for the church to be on the forefront of social justice, or have they given up on us? Mm. What do you think? I don't think they've given up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that they, there was the Barna Group did a study. They said they love Jesus but can't stand the church. Right. Um, and there is a generation, and that is a, a heck of a indictment. And at the same time, it is it is something beautiful and powerful. The fact that you still have people who are yearning for the church to be what the church is supposed to be. And that's really what's being said, because anger, frustration means I still got love for you. Indifference is the problem. Mm-hmm. And we have yet to, to, to move to the indifference mode. We have people that said, I want you to be what you're supposed to be. Because this man, Jesus, you all talk about, he, he, he's a liberating person. You know, he's prophetic in his engagement, but all this other stuff y'all keep talking about you, Jesus is over here, but all the stuff you you're doing is, is opposite then. So I think that you need to have young people of every generation who are critiquing institutions and people who find themselves in, in positions. And I think that that's what's still happening today. You and I were at a retreat uh, with the Ferguson leaders way back at the beginning of the campaign, the Black Lives Matter campaign. I remember how you were so deeply moved by those young people. And I remember coming to visit uh, your church a year later, and a lot of young people from the streets of Chicago in the Black Youth Project there, which is Black Lives Matter in Chicago, were at your church. And in the in the pastor study after the sermon, we had a discussion about the sermon. They were right there in your church. So so they're they're showing up. At, at your church, they're showing up in different spaces, and uh, yeah. we're, we're grateful that we're, we're attempting to the best that we can do because of some of the leaders here uh, creating a space without walls. And uh, but what's funny is they will say, you know, you know, you all are kind of peculiar and different at Trinity. You know, we're talking about the mother folk, you know, I mean, it's just, they say y'all are really peculiar, you know, you, you all black, they, they call us the blackity black church. I mean, they joke about it. Bishop's laughing because yeah. she's, yeah. <laughs> and so they, they, they joke about us, but yeah. like, you know, we, the, 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 the nicest thing I ever heard 
was a young man who said, I'm never coming to your church. But then he looked at me, he said, but you're my pastor, but you're <laughs> never coming to your church. He said, I don't feel comfortable in church. I don't like to. He said, but you better say something when I die. It'll be the funeral home when I'm, when I'm, but he said, you better say something. But uh, there, there is that, there is that feeling. There's that real feeling. It's, and, it, and it's real. And we got to really address it. And maybe even more importantly, for them showing up in your spaces, you're showing up in their spaces. Mm-hmm. You're showing up where they are in the streets, in the community. So when you're showing up where their spaces are, maybe or maybe not they'll come to our spaces, but being in their spaces, which you're doing on the South Side of Chicago, I think is very important. Bashtai, you, you're the, the head of the National Council of Churches, all these churches, millions of people. How are the churches who are in your wonderful network dealing with young people? How are we succeeding with young people today in, in those churches? Well, let me let me share with you as I as I begin to answer that that question. When you go back and look at the marches that were happening uh, in the '60s, you will see that that you know the the our allies at that time were members of the National Council of Churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, That's true. Know, have a huge sign. The National Council of Churches in in, in one of the marches. Uh, King came and visited with the National Council of Churches, and we do need to raise another generation of allies, because uh, I go back and I quote Sweet Honey in the Rock, uh, who sings a song that that when um, the concern for uh, Black mothers and their sons is the same as white mothers and their sons, uh, you know, we can't rest until freedom comes. So uh, we, we do need allies. Uh, and I, I agree that we need to be in the spaces where young people are. Um, you, we forget how young King was uh, when he um, started the Montgomery uh, bus boycott. He was a young man. And many of our young people don't see things the same way we see them. Uh, and so in our communions, uh, they are many of our communions who have created innovative spaces for young people to have their voice, uh, to be able to lead in this digital verse uh, of ours. And so uh, we want to give them opportunity. We have to begin the conversation where they're talking and where they're talking and meeting is not in the traditional status quo spaces. And so uh, many of our communions are going into the non-traditional places to have conversation. One of them is just where we are today. 600, 600 people registered in the midst of a <clears throat> excuse me a webinar I don't know who they are. You don't know who yet. We may never meet them again, but we have begun a conversation. We have planted a seed. Uh, we are dialoguing and they will grasp it, use it and run with it in their own context. And so just as Jesus started with a story, I, you know, I'll go to the woman at the well. She was coming for water. Jesus talked to her about water. Jesus didn't ask her to teach Bible study, didn't invite her to come to Sunday school, didn't invite her to Sunday service. He just started a conversation with water. And that's what we have to do. Start the conversation where they are and with what they have right now, and then lead them to where we want to be. We have to love folk. You know, you have, you got kids who come to Trinity, come to Bethel, go to Ebenezer, you know, go to Mount Gilboa, you know, go go to, go to, um, you know, St. Augustine, you know, go to the church and uh, baby boy walks in and say, boy, you can't come here with your hat on. Uh, you know, um, pull your pants up, um, you know, come back when your skirt is a little bit lower without understanding when baby boy walks in the door, 
it is not what he has on. It is not what they cl- where they come from. Your conversation should be, we've been waiting for you. <laughs> we've been yeah. praying for you. You didn't even know we've been praying for you. Yeah. Come on, sit down yeah. next to me. Yeah. yeah. The hat, the clothes, and all of that is inconsequential. We're after your heart. We're after your soul. We want to make sure your mind is fed and nourished so that you can rise to your full potential. Mm-hmm. And that's why some young people have a hard time coming to church because they stumble over us. <laughs> They stumble over the human factor and can't get and can't get to Jesus Christ. Well, Tennessee has already come up here, and let me let's talk for a moment about Tennessee. You had uh, a new generation of black legislators who quoted up King and and talk about themselves as part of the Third Reconstruction. You had young people uh, who are turning out. Some not even able to vote yet. They're too young. This movement about guns in Tennessee is multiracial, and lots of young kids were coming to it. And some of those legislators had seminary training. <laughs> so, so Tennessee is gone across the country now. We've seen a new generation rising up, and we heard uh, preaching on the floor of the Tennessee legislature, which gave me a lot of hope for what you're both talking about. You know, it it, it you know. It just blows my mind that children have the courage to do what grown folk haven't done. You know, when children have to speak up for their own rights, when children have to take to the streets, because the grown folk are not saying anything at all. It just blows my mind. And I'll just leave the rest to Otis. (laughs) (laughs) I think I say ditto on that one. I say ditto without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's not just in Tennessee. I think um, with the uh, high school shooting in Florida, yeah. when the mm-hmm. children started to take to the streets and demonstrate and, and demonstrate for their own safety and their own rights. Uh, I, I think it was in Chicago, actually, when a sixth grader um, wrote their last will and testament. A sixth grader should not be writing their last will and testament because they're not quite sure they're going to come home from school. Right. right. So. That shows a failure of the grown folk doing grown things to stand up that your children have to speak up for themselves. So um, I shared in in another context, I said, it depends on how you grade America. If you grade America on her gross national product, if you grade America on income status and socioeconomic status, if you grade America on her military might, uh, then she ranks among the greatest in the world. But if you grade America on how her ability to protect her children, America has a failing grade, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a failing grade that we can't figure out yeah. how to have gun safety, protect children, and still have a Second Amendment rights. Right. We haven't figured that out, and so. Too many, I think I was at your church. I just want to talk about too many tiny little coffins being lowered into the ground. Too many mm-hmm. tiny little coffins being lowered into the ground. And indeed, um, uh, it was the Birmingham history, as powerful as the Birmingham letter was, that didn't win in Birmingham. It was the Children's Crusade, which happened about two weeks later. And I know people who were middle school kids and high school climbing out of the windows on ropes from their schools 
uh, in Birmingham when their principals wouldn't let them go. They climbed out the window ropes. Now they're clergy, and uh, one's a bishop I've talked to. They were the kids who climbed out the windows of their schools to go and march with Dr. King in the streets against Bull Connor and his his violence. And, And the children doing that is what really brought the campaign to such national attention and was critical for its Mm. success. So when children uh, climb out of their windows or they show up at legislatures, this is what's going to change the minds and hearts of of a lot of people. Um, A question about movement and strategy. Um, uh, uh, The letter from Birmingham Jail talked about the external work that's necessary for nonviolent campaigns, but also noted the internal work that's necessary as well. He talks about four necessary uh, steps for a nonviolent campaign. Collection of facts, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. And I was struck by the explicit step of self-purification. What do you make of that? Uh, Was he speaking on individual level, a group level? We talk about external. How do we prepare ourselves as a movement internally? for the struggle ahead. Uh, what can we learn from what King was saying there about a movement's need for that deeper, that's Howard Thurman, that deeper contemplation, that deeper uh, purification? What does that mean for us today, do you think? Yeah, I'm glad you, you brought that piece up. Uh, I remember as, as a child, my father and my mother talking about the steps that they had to take in reference to the movement. And they were always saying that there is a space for everyone. He said, not everybody is going to march. My mom so I said, I'm, I'm not marching. I get mad too easy. Um, so I'll be doing some organizing at the office, you know, so uh, I get y'all out of jail. But uh, he said the education aspect, that the collection of facts that you have individuals who are specializing, the intellectuals like here, here is the information. And then there's the negotiation. They said, we, we're going to sit down with the folks even though we know what the answer is going to be, but there is a purpose to sitting down with your opponent uh, when they tell you no. <laughs> um, but we, we went through the steps. We went through the steps. But then that self-purification is also one of the other terms that they would use was preparation, meaning that there is an individual preparation. My spirit, my body has to be prepared and I have to be ready to go into enemy territory. I'm going to hear things, see things, feel things uh, that I've never felt before. So am I ready to do this and know that I'm going in as as a witness, as a soldier, as a warrior for the transformation of of democracy? And if Mm -hmm. I can't do it, then I need to get out. Now, it's interesting why they had self-purification there, because they knew that there was already a disruption COINTELPRO program. They didn't call it COINTEL then, but they knew that you could identify some of the people who were working on behalf of J. Edgar Hoover because they couldn't go through self-purification. So we could identify those who were trying to disrupt. Uh, I would hear from from my parents because they would refuse this process Mm. and they were not prepared spiritually to move into the direct action moment. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a preparation for your act. 
the art of war, Sun Tzu talks about it. Martial mm -hmm. arts talks about it. Muhammad mm -hmm. Ali talked about it. He said, it's not mm -hmm. just me moving my hands. He said, there's got, there is a spiritual preparation before I get in the ring. And there was a person who had a role for him for his success, Drew Houdini Brown. He said, you gotta have the right cut man in the corner when you are bloodied up that can put you back in the ring. So the yeah. self-verification piece is critical but we want to jump over that and get directly to the action piece. But now yeah. we've got to have the self-purification preparation. Really important point. Bishop. I look at the steps as 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 two two different ways. One, it's boot camp. If you are in the armed forces and you're going to have to serve your country, you're going to need to know your weapon, how to take it apart and put it together. You're going to need uh, what weapons are uh at your disposal, whether it's a rifle, an AKA 47, or it's a, a knife, or it's a side piece. But the last weapon you have is your hands. Um, the steps of boot camps. What weapons do you have? Your nonviolent action. Prayer is a weapon. And at the end of the day, all you have is your faith. It's not hands to fight back. Uh, you have to go through boot camp to be mentally prepared to be able to take a blow. Everybody can't do that. That's, I understand your mom. Everybody can't do that. Um, anger, being able to hit back. If you also understand that as the rise of the nonviolent movement, there was also the rise of the black power movement. Totally opposite, same goal, but opposite approaches. Then not only is the boot camp to prepare your body and mind to put yourself, to go into battle, put yourself on the bottom line, but the gathering of facts is your why. You can't go into battle unless you know what your why is. Your right. why will make you go. Your why will make you stay there. Your why will make you stare, stare down the German shepherd dog that's coming straight at you. That why will help you, you know, protect, you know, to protect your body when the hose goes on. The why, you know, when the paddy wagon shows up and a whole bunch of uh, police officers jump in and you know where you're going to go and you don't know what's going to happen. And you heard the testimonies and some people, the violence in the jails and uh, the following and the raping and all of that. Your why I say, why, why did you do that? Why did, I did this for these reasons. And those are the list of facts. So you have to go through boot camp. That's the preparation that Otis is talking about. But you also have to understand your why. And even though you feel you're all by yourself, the Lord will go with you. Yeah. You have a power that is not your own. Well, your older brother who you told us about who rode the buses uh, and the uh, sit-ins, he probably went through that uh, preparation. Our friend, brother Jim Lawson, did a lot of that at Fisk University and so many others. I think sometimes we don't do the preparation now that we need. It was done back then. So something for us to give thought to. A quote that you raised, Bishop, in your opening remark, this famous quotation from King. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Now, we've all used that again and again. But given the many injustices we see in our time, from gun control to climate to policing, mass incarceration, racial justice, how do we discern where and how to focus our energies? How do we discern where and how to focus our energies? Me first. OK, where and, where, where and how uh, to focus our energies. Most of the time we respond mm -hmm. uh, 
a crisis happens, a George Floyd happens, a Breonna Taylor happens, you know, and we respond and we respond in the moment, but we don't follow all the way through until we get a result. So we're in the street, we protest, we show our anger, uh, show our anger. And there's such a thing as trauma fatigue uh, mm-hmm. and collective trauma uh, that we all that we all share. But we don't always we need to respond to it, but we can craft our own narrative. We can choose the issues. We can define the issues. We can share that issues with others, especially if we follow the thought. You're going to ban this book today. Then you're going to ban this video and ban this movie. If you're not careful, they're going to talk about banning the Bible and taking out which sections of the Bible because Jesus is an extremist. He's an other, you know, and so we can craft our own narrative. We can select the things that are important for us and then push that envelope if we would just stand together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Walsh? Yeah, I, I would add that when our hearts are, are breaking and we're deeply passionate about a particular issue, going through the process of educating going through the process of, of purifying and joining the fight. Now, when we join the fight, that doesn't mean we are in the ring for every fight, but it does mean that we support those who are the fighters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for example, I use, I keep using Muhammad Ali, but I was like, Muhammad Ali was a heavyweight. He can't fight the featherweight fights. He just, it's, it's wrong. He can't do it. And he doesn't have the skill. He's too slow. You know, he's, too, he's just too slow because of his size, but he, he sits courtside and he helps support. And he so there is this thing that sometimes people think that they have to be involved in every single issue. You may not be involved in every single issue, but you can be supportive. You can be an accomplice uh, in every single issue, though you may not necessarily be the one who's in the ring. And right. we have to learn how, for example, you know, I think about the South African movement uh, that so many people were supportive, but we're not on the ground. And right. we've got to know when our place is to be supportive, but not on the ground, uh, because there are other people who have a better view, have the plan that we've got to get in line and say, where you say we go, we go. And, and that's one of the big challenges today that people want to yeah. show and then they all of a sudden want to take over. And in a movement, the important thing is you have to know you're not alone, mm-hmm. that other people are doing the same things you are in different places. And being alongside the ring is a powerful notion of being in, in the ring. Bishop McKenzie and Reverend Moss, thank you so much. I always love to hang out with the two of you, and I could talk to you all night. So blessings to the two of you and your wonderful work, and blessings to all of you who are listening in your wonderful work. And let's take uh, this this calling for our space and time, all our different spaces and times, to do what we're talking about tonight. And we thank you for a letter written a long time ago, which found its way into all of our hearts and minds and will continue to do so. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.